Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Paolo Bacigalupi, whose previous books include the Hugo and Nebula winning The Wind-Up Girl, the Prince winning Shipbreaker, its sequel The Drowned Cities, and the middle grade novel Zombie Baseball Beatdown. Bacigalupi's new book is The Doubt Factory. It's being published in October by Little Brown, which is sponsoring this podcast. In The Doubt Factory, teenager Alex Banks's comfortable life is disrupted when an activist group begins targeting her family, her school, and Alex herself. She quickly realizes that it's all connected to her father's high-level public relations work, and she's forced to start questioning things about her life that she's always taken at face value. Thank you for speaking with me, Paolo. Thank you for having me. So I imagine uh, for a book like this that doing some real-world research is something that's maybe both very necessary and very upsetting. Is that is that at all fair? Yeah. Uh, you know, this this book actually started with sort of accidental research, and uh, and it was upsetting, actually. Uh, my, a friend of mine is a science journalist, and she was doing some... Some research into companies that spread doubt about um, global warming, and it was sort of just this offhand thing that she mentioned at one point. And you know, oh, I'm working on this story, and she's she was sort of troubled by some of the stuff that she was learning, and uh, and you know, we chatted about it very briefly, and then I forgot about it for a while, and then uh, and then I read her article later on, and it was. It was sort of shocking. And at that point, I, I asked her, well, where did you start for your research? And she pointed me to a couple of books. And uh, and when I started reading that original source material, things felt even more shocking. And and it's it's a sort of a it's it's unexpected to see how cynical big companies can be. And for me, it really was. There was a moment as I was reading um, uh, one particular book called Doubt is Their Product, where in, in a very early chapter, uh, it talks about the aspirin industry and how the aspirin industry tried to defend itself against claims that its uh, product was causing Ray's syndrome in children. And so you hear, have this huge pharmaceutical company that's that's denying that it's killing kids because it's more profitable to do that than to actually accept that their product actually is dangerous to kids. And you know, you see an example like that, and you think, how could anybody with any ethical basis at all want to fight this. You know, the, the minute that, you know, the CDC and the Surgeon General and everybody is saying, yeah, this thing causes Ray's syndrome, this is very dangerous for children, you would think that the maker of that product would immediately feel a responsibility to label their product, to say, yeah, this shouldn't be given to, to young kids. This shouldn't be um, out in the market for children. Um, and instead, you see you see the opposite behavior. You see a huge amount of denial. You see a huge amount of uh, attempts to sort of smear, you know, everything from the CDC to the scientists who are doing the research uh, as being biased, as rushing to conclusions, all of these different things. And meanwhile, kids continue to die. Um, and and that was sort of an extraordinary thing. And and. And and then when you see that that happens in industry after industry after industry after industry, that pattern becomes really horrifying as well. And so, yeah, the, there was some point where the the research actually makes you so angry that uh, you you can sort of you almost can't breathe. You just think, how can this possibly be allowed? Even and like you said, this is really you know these sort of tactics and these sort of things are are, are very pervasive, and it's by no means just limited to the pharmaceutical industry. How did you decide that that was going to be sort of your, maybe, uh, I'm going to say an entry point, but that was going to be sort of 
part of what you focused on with this book as opposed to any number of other ways that PR is being used to sort of seed doubt and sort of, you know, cause confusion? Um, well, I think, you know, yeah, it is interesting because these, these techniques have been used forever, um, but, but really got their, their start with the tobacco industry. That's where, that's where you see a lot of the, the doubt techniques really getting going. The, the idea that, you know, scientific evidence isn't necessarily, uh, conclusive yet, the idea that we can't rush to judgment, the idea that um, we need to explore more avenues uh, for research before we make any legislative action or before we do anything to a product. Um, you see that start with uh, something like tobacco, and then you see it move through numerous industries. You see it move to the nuclear industry. You see it move through the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you see it move into the petroleum industry with global warming. Um, and actually, it's some of the same players moving from place to place as well, which is fascinating. You sort of can, can track these different major public relations specialists as they, as they move from industry to industry as hired guns, helping, helping out the next industry that's in, in trouble. And... <laughs> I think for me, I think that, you know, pharmaceuticals uh, ended up, it, it wasn't actually originally my intention to work with pharmaceuticals so much, but, um, but they're very personal um, and they touch everybody's life. And so it's an easy way for us to talk about something that's visceral uh, for all of us. You know, is this pill safe for me? You know, how do I know this pill is safe for me? Who's telling me it's safe for me? And so it touches on questions of the ethics of the company. It also touches on ideas about how how we're regulated, how what kinds of safeguards the government provides. Um, it touches on a bunch of those things in a very personal way. And so it means that it's a, a, a better bet when you're going to talk about Moses having had a terrible experience uh, and having lost his family it's much easier to drive that into a sort of a personal narrative if you're coming through the pharmaceutical industry than if you're you're running it through you know the asbestos industry or the diacetyl industry or something else you know so mm -hmm. this seems to me like it, it's probably among your maybe some of your least speculative uh, books so far I mean do you even consider this science fiction I mean you, you have some of those very same examples about aspirin and things like that in the book itself right yeah no it's not it's not science fiction at all this one I, you know normally when I'm writing science fiction when I'm writing an extrapolated story the the idea is that I want to take people out to a very strange world that's extremely horrifying so that then they can come back and see their own world more clearly. You know, the idea when I was writing something like The Wind-Up Girl, I wanted to talk about GM foods and the idea of big companies owning our food sources and what that might imply. And, and so, you know, some of that stuff hasn't happened yet, but the implications are all around us. And so by writing science fiction, you create a very... Um, uh, you create a visceral experience of where we might be headed, and then when then people can then it contextualizes our present moment. With this particular set of topics, almost anything you do in the science fictional sense actually takes you away from the absolute, already immediate horror of what's going on today. It actually makes it more muted, and so this story, almost from the very beginning. I knew it was going to be uh, a contemporary thriller. It was going to be a caper and a con, but it was all going to be specifically inside of the context of, of a present day moment and exploring our present day and trying to see our present day very clearly for what it is right now. Um, and science fiction would have obscured that in this case. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the opening scene, sort of prologue, uh, your character Moses is sort of looking at Alex and her privileged circle, you know, sort of as fish in an aquarium, basically yeah. kind of oblivious to the greater world around them. Yeah. Do you see a, a disconnect at all between a sort of ongoing appetite for these sort of speculative books or uh, post-apocalyptic fiction, that sort of thing, and maybe a lack of awareness about these things that are going on right now all around us? So this is two, probably two separate rants, but... Uh... 
but one of them th- I, I think that the, I think that the real purpose of science fiction and apocalyptic literature and dystopian literature and all these things is that they should not be escapist, um, and that's my personal bias about why I write and what I think the tools of of science fiction should and could be used for. And so, if you're writing a speculative novel that really doesn't tell you anything about your present moment, I think it's it's just it is pure escape. I mean, it can be. It really, you know, it's no more. It's no more meaningful than any other purely escapist uh, story, whether that's a, a western or a romance or a um, or a tea cozy mystery or whatever the thing is. Um, if if you aren't using those very powerful tools of science fiction to say something, then why did it have to be science fiction in the first place? Is oftentimes my question. Um, but in general, I think uh, I think that we're all pretty much unaware of. Uh, what's going on in our world around us. Um, and I think that's not, I think that's partly our own laziness. And I think that's partly also a fairly dedicated campaign from everyone around us to make sure that we, we don't really understand. I mean, if you take almost any topic, you, you get to a, first of all, there's a level of complexity now within our societies. I think that we live in a very complex world. And so if you want to unpack um, the question of, where did the laptop that I've got in my lap right now that I'm using to Skype, where did it come from and who did it cost and, and who did it hurt and how is it, um, where does it go after it dies? You know, Apple computing has a really large stake in making me think of this as a pristine object with no history and no future beyond the fact that it's a useful tool for me right here, right now. Um, and and so you've got you've got advertising, um, you've got marketing, you've got uh, this very deliberate sort of idea that we shouldn't know where our stuff comes from, we shouldn't know where it goes to, we shouldn't know how it gets regulated, we shouldn't know, we shouldn't know anything other than our consumer experience in the moment. And I think we, we sort of willingly want to be part of that illusion that all of our all of our objects are pristine and our lives are pristine. And so Alex being clueless in her world um, is no different from me being clueless in mine, really. Um, I think that we uh, it's very, very difficult to spend time digging down through the layers of marketing and advertising and and deliberately obscured information to get to some deeper level of information. Um, I mean, you know, just just following you know, something that's been interesting to me for a while has been natural gas drilling and fracking and things like that. And, uh, and just following how the national natural gas industry gets regulated and how they avoided being regulated by the EPA under the Clean Water Act. This is an entire line of information that you can follow down a rabbit hole. And it's fascinating. Um, but it, you, you need to be dedicated and, and focused in order to get to the point where you see all of these different pieces lining up to the point where, you know, a drilling industry that specializes in doing things like injecting benzene and toluene into the ground doesn't get doesn't get regulated, even though it's going to clearly affect groundwater in some cases everywhere. And, uh, you know, there's things like that that are just fascinating to me. But um, but we're all ignorant. Um, you know, now that you have been writing for, for younger readers, I, I'm assuming you're starting to hear from them. And I'm curious, does that at all give you any sort of hope about where things might be headed or the degree to which people are maybe starting to pay attention to these and other things or when you're doing the research for a sort of book like this or where everywhere you turn is sort of another rabbit hole that you could fall down of something truly awful does that leave you uh, in more of a place of despair or something like that i think that a lot of times the the letters that i get from from younger readers uh the things that i I feel like where I feel like I'm having an impact typically is on the personal level. It's typically um, kids who 
have written to me because, you know, they found they're suddenly engaged with reading for the first time and they hadn't been before. It's kids writing to me because um, they're saying, oh, yeah, my dad is a lot like uh, Richard Lopez in, in Shipbreaker. And and they're talking about um, personal experiences of of abuse or of, you know, finding role models and standing up or, you know, things like that. And I see that a lot in um in the letters that I get in terms of larger impacts, uh, there are times where it feels like I have made an impact and it's, uh, it's interesting in terms of with something like shipbreaker, uh, there was a moment where, uh, I've always been interested in trying to make sustainable technologies look, um, exciting and cool. Uh, and there was a moment when uh, a designer, a graphic designer had sat down and tried to design what a clipper ship would look like. And I like the idea that you can think up an idea and then somebody else takes it a little bit further and imagines what that idea would look like. And then you can sort of see that moving down the road to the point where somebody might even build a clipper ship at some point, a new high technology clipper ship and what that might look like. And those kinds of things, you do feel like you kind of have an impact. Um, In terms of the larger shape of our future, though, um, I think I still feel like the status quo uh, is still pretty much the status quo. Um, I don't see, I don't see us, you know, significantly reducing our carbon footprint. I don't see endangered species no longer going extinct. I barely see us um, actually being. I don't see us being able to talk clearly about the data that surrounds us. Um, and in fact, more often than not, it feels like, especially in the United States, it feels like we are, we're having a harder and harder time talking about the data that surrounds us as if data actually matters, as if data is actually information that we need to take into account. Um, and this particularly reflects things, you know, relates to things like global warming, um, where, you know, the data is in and yet our ability to engage with that information seems to be so haphazard and, and ineffectual that, uh, that I, I do sort of feel a little bit hopeless, to be honest. Hmm. Um, I was curious also, uh, did, did you, how did you come to begin writing for younger readers? Was, was it a conscious decision or was it sort of, with Shipbreaker, was it, were you sort of told like, you know, this is really maybe uh, best for teens or... Uh, no, I was, I wanted to write for young people. Um, there was, uh, my wife is a school teacher and she had kids who, um, weren't very excited by reading. And it was interesting because talking to her, she's, she's actually a really good teacher. Um, but she also was having some kids who are kind of slipping through the cracks and, uh, and, and we were talking about what she was, what she was teaching in her classes. And, and, you know, if you're looking at something like The House on Mango Street, which is a wonderful book and it's beautiful, um, it's also, you know, it's sort of lacking in, in explosions. <laughs> and and for me, when I was growing up, uh, explosions mattered for stories. Um, that was actually where my, my reading came from. I was a science fiction fantasy reader growing up. And, and, and that was, that was storytelling to me for years, you know, into my, into my late teens, into my early twenties, even, um, literature didn't really hold a great deal of interest to me. Um, but genre fiction certainly did. And because of that, it meant that I could go through many literature classes that at the time were fairly boring to me, but I could sort of soldier through them and still think that reading was interesting because I had been inoculated and had this other idea of storytelling that was genre fiction. And so it meant by the time I was in my early 20s, and I was finally ready to start reading some literature, um, I hadn't stopped reading along the way. Um, anyway, that's a long way of saying, though, that, that uh, 
uh, I wanted, I went back and looked at my old science fiction collection and realized that a lot of the books that I had grown up reading were dated. Um, and not, they didn't do the job that I thought they did. They were great in my own mind, but they wouldn't have been great for, for kids now. And so I wanted to write something that felt, you know, updated, um, but relevant to a kid, uh, again. And so that was, that was sort of the, the jumping off point for Shipbreaker. And uh, you've said that you're you're planning to do more books in the world of those uh, of Shipbreaker and uh, the Drowned Cities. Is there any news uh, along those lines? Yeah, well, that's actually my next. The next book that I'm going to be working on is Seascape, um, and that'll be uh, the third book in the Shipbreaker series, and it'll be set up in Seascape, Boston. Um, and it's probably going to bring back a bunch of the characters from both of the other books. I think that. Uh, Tool is going to be back for sure. Um, Naylor, uh, Malia, um, some other characters all maybe um, sort of their stories may be intertwining in this third book. So, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you wrote a piece uh, last year for uh, uh, author uh, John Scalzi's website about sort of feeling some intense outside pressure uh, from the industry and the fans when you were writing *Drowned <laughs> Cities*, and about how right. *Zombie Baseball Beatdown* kind of helped you uh, deal with that. Is that still something uh, you, you sort of struggle with? And I don't know or dealing with a year later? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there is this, there is this sense that you have that the, the more, the more success you have, the more aware you are of the, the people you can disappoint with your next book. And that's sort of an ironic position to be in where, um, where you, uh, used to have a very quiet space in your head to work. And, and now you have, you have readers, you have fans, you have critics, you have lovers, you have haters. And, and all of those voices are inside of your head kind of bouncing around. And so, yeah, with Zombie Baseball Beatdown, that was very much uh, a process for me, to, to a chance for me to go off and write something that was um, just for my own joy and my own engagement. And that sort of said, it's okay to just be creative about something that's interesting to you. Don't worry about any of the other, you know, responses. And, uh, even if somebody doesn't get what you're trying to do, you get it. And that's important to sort of hold on to. And, you know, honestly, doubt factory was, was, uh, another one of those kinds of experiments for me. It's, it's a book that, that I feel passionately about, but it isn't a science fiction book. It isn't, you know, a speculative, uh, adventure. Um, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of a story. It's, it's something that has romance in it. It's something that is contemporary thriller. It's something that, you know, this is just a, a lot of different things for me. And it's, 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 it's very powerful for me. And little Brown was really cool about letting me run that experiment. Um, even though it's not, you know, it's not technically what's it, what, you know, what I'm known for, what's in my wheelhouse exactly. Um, and so that's, that's very freeing. Um, at this point, I feel like, um, I, I'm starting to have faith that if I find something interesting, that that I'll be able to way, find a way to get readers to also believe that it's interesting, and that uh, people will um, at least give me a shot to try to you know sort of uh, say my piece in whatever genre or style uh, fascinates me. So at this point, I'm feeling actually like I've got a little more elbow room than I did, you know, back, you know, back when I, especially when I was working on Drowned Cities, where I felt very, very closed down. Um, at this point, it feels more like there's a lot of experiments I want to try and a lot of different stories I want to play with, and that I've got a lot of opportunities to do that. And now the biggest problem is actually time. <laughs> um, and just being able to get <laughs> to be able to <laughs> get to all the stories that you want to write. So mm-hmm. and um, are there other sort of ideas that you've been sort of dwelling on or, you know, themes that you feel like are, are natural next steps for you? 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, so, uh, you know, I'm also balancing uh, another career writing um, for adults as well. And so my next book that's actually going to be coming out is The Water Knife, which is all about uh, drought in the uh, Colorado River Basin in the Southwest. Um, and that's a science fiction novel. And then I'm going to be doing Seascape uh, for, for young adults. Um, and after that, um, honestly, my my son keeps leaning on me for another zombie baseball book <laughs> and, um, and we've started kicking around ideas for what that might look like. And, uh, and, and there's more things that I want to talk about the food industry. The food industry is fascinating to me, um, because it's such a weird thing. And, uh, um, I've been, there's currently, there's a lawsuit about, um, uh, against some of the people who labeled uh, lean textured beef product as pink slime, mm-hmm. and so the journalists and and scientists who sort of called it pink slime now there's a sort of a defamation lawsuit that's being launched by I think I think the company is Beef Products International I can't I can't quite remember their name anyway the the company that was uh, producing all the pink slime for all the schools and things like that um, I just love this um, is now suing the the people for coming up with a really great moniker for exactly the weird you know, sub product of meat that, that this company was making. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the company feels deeply wounded. So that's like a billion dollar lawsuit over, over why you called us pink slime in the first place. And, you know, when you see that, you think, aha, that's a story right there. There's something there that I really want to pick at. Um, so that's one that's, that's fascinating to me. And then I think the other thing that's really interesting to me right now is biodiversity. Um, and the loss of biodiversity. And I don't know how I want to go after that story yet, but, uh, but I see we have, you know, we have fewer species um, on our planet than we had when I was growing up. And when my son is an adult, there are going to be fewer species on the planet than he, when he was born. And, and that's interesting to me. The idea of ecosystems and unraveling um, is interesting to me. And I don't know how to write that story yet, but there's something there that I feel like needs to be um, explored. And and so that's that's probably my next project after that. Excellent. Well, uh, congratulations again on the new book, and uh, thanks again for speaking with me. Thank you. Uh, once again, I've been speaking with Paolo Bacigalupi, whose new book, The Doubt Factory, is out in October from Little Brown. Thank you for listening to PW KidsCast. Cast. 